it was interesting because I started traveling some to Democratic groups. And when I'd say like 25% of my voters voted for Donald Trump, far too many times on the Democratic side, people would say, what's wrong with those people? As opposed to maybe what's wrong with us? Because if someone's voting their economic interests, their education interests, their healthcare interests, they ought to be with us. So I think that we have to make sure as Democrats that we have a message and we're pushing to improve people's lives and actually tap into the conversations that they might be having, not on polling calls, but around their own kitchen table or across a fence line. This is Wally Knox. Welcome to The Political Conversation. Who says a Democrat might be able to win the presidency by winning the coasts, but you're not going to be able to govern? He's Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who first became widely known to the national American public when he ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. And he's my guest today on The Political Conversation. This is a guy who was elected governor of a reliably red state in 2012 and again in 2016. The entire eight years he was governor, his legislatures were never less than 58% Republican, and yet he accomplished some remarkable things. Let me give you just one example. Following the creation of the Affordable Care Act under President Obama, red state after red state refused to take advantage of the new Medicaid benefits simply because it was a Democratic measure. Bullock got expansion of Medicaid by getting Republicans to cross over and vote for it. I wanted to talk to Bullock about what he sees as the problems of the Democratic Party. Why are we losing so many races? And I asked him about the intense debate within the party on which direction it should take. Governor Bullock, it's good to see you again. It's fabulous seeing you as well, Wally. So let me leap right into what I'm just hankering to talk to you about. And uh, in a nutshell, it's that uh, the popular thing these days is to lament and lament about how divided American society is. And folks love to wrangle about what's the fundamental division. Some people think it's a party division. Uh, we're polarized between uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party and the right wing of the Republican Party, or its race, or its class, or its education is the, is the cool one this month. All things are explained by the differences between the college educated of us and everybody else in the society. And I listen to all those different voices, and they differ about what the fundamental divide is, but they all seem to be preaching that we're so divided so unreconcilably different that the society is rapidly becoming ungovernable. And I just wonder what Steve Bullock's take on that is. Yeah, it's, look, it's too important to accept that as a premise, right? That I do see deeper divisions. I used to lament to say, you know, I wish people cared as much about politics as they do about um like supporting their favorite NFL football team. Because, uh, you know, on any right any given Sunday, you can get 50,000 people in a stadium all excited. I worry a little bit that our politics is becoming more like, and the teams that we choose are becoming more like uh, sporting events. But I need to believe, not just for today, but for what I'm going to give to my grandkids or even my kids, that we still share more in common than what divides us. You know, and most people's lives are really too busy to care about. You know, it's a luxury to care about politics. They're more worried about, is my car going to break down? Am I going to lose my job? Are my kids going to get sick? Um, the red, blue, red team and blue team, or even divides within each respective party, seem to be becoming more pronounced. But we can't give up hope and just say that there's nothing that can be done, because at that point, um, we really are ungovernable. 
And one of the corollaries with that that concern is the kind of questions uh, that the Democratic Party is wrestling with. I'm a Democrat. You're a Democrat. We've talked about these issues for a long time. Um, despite the successes of 2020, we elected a president, defeated Donald Trump. Um, but the losses of seats in the House and the minimal control of the Senate kind of formed the background for that concern. And the debate emerged all over again that I think you and I have heard for a long time. And that is that the, the party needs to, uh, some say the party needs to expand its support and reach outside whatever is considered the traditional base. And others very strongly argue that the traditional base is where we should go and just work harder to turn out that base and we'll continue to win elections if indeed we are continuing to win elections. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's a false choice, Wally. In 2016, I was the only Democrat in the country to win a statewide reelect in a state where Trump won, right? That Trump took Montana by over 20, I won by four. About a quarter of my voters voted for Donald Trump during that time. And if, if I may, if I may interrupt you, if I remember correctly, I can be wrong on this, but I think you actually won in 2016 by a larger margin than you had won the governorship the first time out in the face, in the face of the Trump campaign. I mean, that you, you didn't, you didn't highlight that, but it's a pretty astonishing fact. Yeah. 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 That's, that's true, Wally. And it was interesting because I started traveling some to Democratic groups. And when I'd say like 25% of my voters voted for Donald Trump, far too many times on the Democratic side, people would say, what's wrong with those people? As opposed to maybe what's wrong with us? Because if someone's voting their economic interests, their education interests, their health care interests, they ought to be with us. Now, coming from a state that as you said, is becoming more and more viewed as reliably red. I think, look, you may be able to win a presidency. You may be able to cobble together 270 electoral votes by just turning around and saying, let's grab the coasts and the main urban areas and many of the, what you'd say would might be traditional democratic groups. But even if you can win a presidency, you're not going to be able to govern. Like you can look over, just think of over the last decade plus, right? Be it uh, Arkansas or North Dakota or Indiana, South Dakota. We used to have Democratic senators. We've lost 700 legislative seats during that time. So I think that we have to make sure as Democrats that we have a message and we're pushing to improve people's lives and actually tap into the conversations that they might be having, not on polling calls, but around their own kitchen table or across a fence line. Well, that brings me directly to uh, another you know, major concern that's, that's publicly discussed and that uh, obsesses me, and that is what's going on with the American middle class. Um, you know, the, I, 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 you know, you're a younger man than I, but I was raised in a period when the middle class in, in America was clearly thriving, growing, advancing. My mom and dad had one major objective in life, and that was that they do fairly well. They do better than their parents had done. They would raise me and I would do better than, than they did. And they were confident that that would happen. Um, a lot of that has changed, and uh, there are many people who think that the rise of people like Donald Trump, including Donald Trump, has a, a great deal to do with the struggles that the middle class has been facing. Your take on that? Yeah, well, just about half America hasn't had a pay increase in real terms in 40 years, right? What your parents taught you, what we all knew, you work hard, you play by the rules, you're going to do better than your parents, no longer exists for people in urban and rural areas. And I do think that that is a 
Like you, you did work as a union side labor lawyer. I did it at one time. Now, this isn't even just identifying with Democrats or Republicans, but, you know, private sector union membership, I mean, a generation's been essentially replaced by independent contractors. And it used to not just be the union members. That actually having the union was part of what would increase wages for everyone. Directly to your point, I do think when, look, Folks aren't doing better. And often then the discussion is either, well, are the Democrats talking about how we're going to make your life economically better, how you can have that real shot at doing better? They don't hear it or that the Republicans are painting it otherwise or Republicans are bringing up issues that folks might adhere to, but it's not getting right to that core issue of, how can I have a better life for my kids? And how can I know that my kids are going to have a better life than I did? And where do we go from here? I think, you know, look, we can diagnose a good chunk of things, right? I mean, I do think part of the polarization was due to Citizens United. Part of it's due to the media landscape. Part of it's due to um, what I'll say is new media. You know, what should have made it sort of the marketplace of ideas, we've actually become more polarized. I think that we do have to hold up um, examples of where people work together. You know, the you mentioned that I uh, served as a fellow right after I got out of office at the Institute of Politics. They just put out a their poll of, I think it's 18 to 19 year olds all across the country today. And I know that this will play later, but one of the things that struck me is the vast majority of identified Democratic and Republican um, young folks say more important than actually, you know, adhering to everything I want is I want to see people work together to get things done. I'm willing to accept that if we have to compromise. That's actually better for the polity. And, you know, we say that, um, and I point that out among young people. I generally think that that's what most people believe. Like that they are willing to give a little to get a little. But it's sure not the voices you hear. Uh, you know, I, it, it's, uh, we, just, uh, we just did an interview with an academic uh, named Yana Krupnikov. Um, and uh, she was studying the difference between the voices we hear and the rest of us and came up with some startling results that I won't, I won't drag you through all the details of that. But it's interesting that academics are beginning to pay close attention to the fact that the political discourse, social media, the, the cable networks, seems to be dominated by folks who to go back to a theme we touched on, emphasize our divisions and are not bringing us together. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the incentive structure in the extant system really is if you look at who raises the most money, those that are actually the most either loudest or most extreme, what's going to get cable news attention and Twitter attention? It's the division. It's never looked... You could turn around, nobody talks anymore about, I think it was the 10 Republican senators that signed on for an infrastructure bill, right? That, that those are things that I wish we could be figuring out ways to further highlight and hold up. But the overall incentive structure when it comes to money in politics, when it comes to media in politics, that's not rewarded. Now, that doesn't mean that we should give up on it all. And I think that you know, you you talked about the academic study. I just read, I've uh, been reading, uh, not through it all, but Ezra Klein wrote a book, Why We're Polarized. And it's fairly scary because it really does go back to almost what we're becoming, right? Is that we often talk about identity as either people of color or 
um, a specific group, but that our political identity is becoming our social identity on the left and the right. And then once it really becomes your social identity, it's that much harder to accept anything outside of that. I don't think that the answers are easy. I mean, I think that if, I think some of the clearer ones are, of course, when we look at redistricting or gerrymandering, um, what's that done? Because it, the incentive system for the elected official is actually to go further to the left or further to the right. Um, when we look at money in politics, that where the money comes from is further to the left or further to the right, more often than not. Um, and I don't know what we do with the media landscape right now, because it really, <laughs> I, I think it's fomenting division more than it's actually bringing things up. But even though the money seems to be flowing there, and even though the cable news networks explain to us over and over again that uh, we are uh, divided pretty much on the listenership that they that they command, um, when you look at, at some of the statistics, the independents in our country have gone from, I, I remember a time when the independents were a throwaway line in analysis, um, no more. Um, independents now are regularly polled as 40% or more. 40, I saw 40, well, heck, <clears throat> Gallup at one point just after Joe Biden was elected uh, found 50% of their respondents were saying, I'm an independent, which was stunning. It declined from there, but it's been over 40 uh, now for quite some time. And both political parties' percentages seem to be shrinking a bit. That, you know, you look at a simple thing like that. Folks who are simply unwilling to say anymore, um, I'm, a, I'm a Republican or a Democrat. What would used to be the simplest thing in the world to say, um, we now have the largest single group in our society is a group that says, I'm neither. And hopefully then that will be then what we as parties work to attract, right? Meaning that if we go back to where we were speaking before of either kitchen table issues or making sure that the government's not going to solve everybody's problems, but government might have a role to play in ensuring that you can have a better life. If those are the issues that we're talking about is how can we actually ensure that people have reasonable health care? Whether that's on the private market or a public solution. How can we actually ensure that one of the great equalizers, public education, is meeting the needs of kids in this economy? How can we ensure that, you know, for the two-thirds of Americans that don't have a college degree, that there are paths through apprenticeships or work-based learning to actually climb that economic ladder. If those were the discussions that we were having right now, from both parties' perspectives, I think your initial premise that we were becoming ungovernable um, would be gone. Well, don't don't lay that premise at my feet. That's 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 you know that's that's the that's the contention that uh, that concerns me, and uh, I far far personally far far from think that we are ungovernable. Um, you know, you look at what of uh, the successes that have gone on in recent years um, with presidents and congresses having an agenda that they've worked hard to achieve, whether it was Republican or Democratic. Some governance is is definitely going on. Um, and your point about the independence, um, the stats I recall for Joe Biden's success this time were that he, he won an astonishing 14% margin among independents in running against Donald Trump, which reversed what the independents had done in 2016. 2016, they had broken for Trump by 4%. There was an 18-point swing among the group who sees themselves as not really, not really uh, wedded to either party. 
Joe Biden connected with a lot of people. Yeah, and, and that's the, I mean, part of it from my perspective, and I recognize that my perspective is shaped by where I live and um, certainly my upbringing and my political upbringing, but part of that connection really has to be far beyond uh, politics and more into people's lives, right? And I think, like, you could look in part what happened of 2020 and those independent swinging is that in 2016, they're like, my life's not getting better. I think this guy, Donald Trump, is going to blow up the system and make my life better. And then what they felt they got out of, you know, wasn't quite what was advertised. So part of it certainly is an anti-Donald uh, Trump swing, but... Part of it, too, is where and we have to figure out ways to actually connect with people's lives where they are on the issues that matter to them. So in November, the Democratic candidate for governor in Virginia, which was supposed to be a relatively safe situation, lost to his Republican opponent. And that sparked a flurry of commentators who pointed to various mistakes Terry McAuliffe, who was the Democratic candidate for governor, had made in the course of his campaign, one of which was uh, to say that uh, parents really should have no say in what their children are taught in the public schools. That didn't go over well, um, but the question was whether Terry's misstatements um, were the real cause of, of the defeat there. Um, you... Uh, uh, about a month later, penned an op-ed in the New York Times um, discussing the role of the Democratic Party and the public's perception of our party. Give us, give us your insights. Yeah, Wally, I actually started that op-ed uh, the day after the election, probably more as therapy than intending to get it published. Because you look Almost half of the counties in Virginia, Democrats lost by over 70 percent. Um, so, look, Barack Obama lost four of the 95 counties by 75 percent in Virginia. Uh, Governor McAuliffe lost 45 of them. Or you look at we've lost 900 legislative seats in the last 15 years. Uh, we've lost so many U.S. Senate races in states where we used to be competitive. So part of mine was this should be a wake-up call that, look, I do believe, like when we talk about sort of transcending partisan boundaries, that most people actually want the same things, right? They want safe community, a roof over their head, a decent job, uh, clean air, clean water, good schools, a belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids than yourself. But the perception of the Democratic Party isn't that we're fighting for those sort of kitchen table issues. Um, far too often that the Democrats are portrayed as, and it's not just the Democrats doing it, it's conservative media, it's other things, but we're portrayed as sort of a bundle of interests rather than just kind of fighting to make your life better. And the perception is, where are we on the uh, on the the coastal issue? Yeah, yeah, and part of that, right? Because I think I said coastal, overeducated, judgmental, any number of things, right? And there are some folks that turn around and say, "Well, boy, you know, Bullock, you're just from flyover country." Like my point in that was even in those New Jersey and Virginia elections. Um, we have rural areas, we have non-urban areas in pretty much every state in the country. And the winning formula for Democrats, it shouldn't be an issue of do we turn out our base urban voters or do we bring back voters who, if they're voting their economic interests, their health care interests, their education interests, they sure as heck used to be with us and they ought to be with us. I think the answer is you have to do both. You have to actually, this isn't a turnout versus 
persuasion. It's a turnout and a persuasion. And your comments about that, um, we all in America fundamentally want very much the same things, including greater opportunity for our kids and a shot at a really good life. <clears throat> it strikes me as how I often evaluate programs. And there are a couple different ways. For me, um, a fundamental issue is, are we restoring the American middle class? And is what we are proposing really going to play a role in that? Um, I don't know about you, but when I looked at Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, there was one particular item that just struck me as uh, resident to that. And that was uh, a, a relatively minor thing called the child care subsidy. Um, but that promised to the American people that a family would pay no more than 7% of its income taking care of their kids so that the parents would be free to go to work and make a better living for the family struck me as something that's deeply resonant with, with the folks and struck me as a part of the Build Back Better plan, which has deep roots in what Americans want. No, I, I think that's correct. Um, I'd also say, you know, like I've talked to folks here in Montana that uh, would say, you know what, a quality child care program costs more than college tuition. So I have to make literally the choice of either working or taking care of my child. Like, so it's not just making 7% of your income um, a cap for childcare. It's also the early childhood education pieces. But I think there are more of the pieces of when you combine Build Back Better and the infrastructure. You know, look, even in rural areas, you know, you talk about the housing crisis in urban areas. In rural areas, a quarter of the people pay over their half of their income in rent. Like there's issues addressing sort of the rental challenges and the housing challenges. Going back to where you began is like, can people get a better life? And that's how you evaluate programs. If you look from 2005 to 2015, 80% of household incomes either stayed flat or dropped. So a whole lot of folks are saying, I'm working hard, I'm playing by the rules, uh, but my life isn't getting better. And government doesn't always seem to be doing that. And like the folks I know, they don't want, this isn't about entitlements, this isn't about handouts, but it's where can government play a constructive role in making my life better. Another part of Build Back Better, presumably, is in some areas, lowering prescription drug costs. Well, that can be significant for folks, not just the caps on um, your child care, but the, the child tax credit would impact 40 million Americans or 39 million. So, so there is some things there and that's part of it. It's like, look, if Democrats are gonna pass things can make people's lives better. From an economic perspective, then we've also got to be out there saying what we did. You can't have a small town unless you have roads going to it and a decent water supply. Uh, we know in the West, probably the most antiquated piece of machinery that exists is the electrical grid. Like these are investments that not only create jobs, but also can help provide those opportunities for that middle-class lifestyle. So there's much more to do for sure. But I'm struck by, in, in your op-ed uh, and in our discussion just now, clearly there are areas, specifically in Build Back Better, where we can see Joe Biden <clears throat> working hard to address the same issues you're talking about. Um, but your op-ed did make the comment that paying off student loans and seeing climate change as a centrally important to our times um, didn't resonate with voters. Well, I did in as much as like with like with student loans, I ended up paying off one hundred seventy five thousand dollars in today's terms of student debt. And it was very, very difficult. And I think we need to do take measures to address higher education costs. But if our party is seen as the party that, as an example, the number one issue is college debt, 
when two thirds of America don't have a college degree? Folks are saying again, what are you talking about that matters in my life? It's one of the reasons why, and Build Back Better also has some efforts for apprenticeships and workforce development. And with climate change, look, this is, you know, we talk about the climate crisis. And it is indeed a crisis that we have to do something about. But folks that really don't know how they're going to make it to the end of the month, they're going to be less concerned about the end of the planet. So I do think there are things that we can do to frame it as a climate opportunity. And that opportunity is to create good jobs, to make meaningful investments, to save our planet, and also not leave communities behind. Um, you know, I mean, we had, like, there were more coal plants at fire, uh, that closed down under President Trump than Barack Obama. Uh, but that's also technology and markets and things like that. But Montana's had coal fired generation. Some of it's closed. But too often people turn around and say people that have spent their whole life working, providing energy for all of us that somehow they're the problem. So that's what I mean by as we go through transitions, we also can't leave communities behind. So it sounds to me, and and you have made this clear in other places at other times, that what you're really seeking is a, a vigorous debate within the Democratic Party and then a vigorous debate within the parties on these issues, um, the kitchen table issues, and the issues of how Americans, especially in the middle class, are going to improve their lives. And that conducted that way, um, we can shift our, our focus from the more ex inflammatory issues that seem to be consuming the media. Um, but just let me just pose this to you. There are differences of opinion within our party on many of the things you said. Um, What's your advice as to how we go forward and have that debate internally and yet emerge unified? Yeah, and that's always going to be a challenge. You know, Mo Udall, who ran for president um, about at the time of the Carter days, he goes to the convention. He says, when Democrats organize a firing squad, we usually do it in a circle, right? Like we're real good at shooting at one another. Um, I do think, though, and there is plenty of room for robust discussions about where we as a nation and world need to go. But if the Democrats have always been the party that is saying that I'm going to be waking up each day to try to make sure that your life is better. If we're not framing it to a degree, and this is one person's perspective, in how we're actually going to do that in tangible ways that make sense in a conversation across the fence line, I think we're only going to get further apart. And even more at times, equally kind of what the message is, is that we don't show up, right? I mean, the first rule in anything is you got to show up. And I think we're getting to this point, and it's only in the last 10, 15 years, where people say, well, why do I go to these exurban areas? You know, I can't win there. I'll never forget running in 2012, being in a county and somebody saying, you can't win here. Why are you here? I was like, well, first, I think people ought to get to hear what I have to say. But second, I know I can't win, but I need to get every single vote out of it. And that's the way you actually get a governing uh, or an electoral majority. And we have to take that attitude at a national level. Let me shift my, my question for a moment from our immediate party and the, the debate that can occur within it over the next few years to the, the context we're in. And um, what I'm noticing, and this is hardly original, is the increasing level of hysteria in the media, um, asking the media to care about the issues you're talking about uh, is, is these days a heavy lift. I noticed just the other day, the Brookings Institute, which used to be a bastion of sober, centrist thinking, um, is publishing uh, pu publishing reports, pushing the idea that the America is full of folks from the left and the right who want to secede from the union. 
So this is on their website now. And it wasn't just one article. There was a, there were a number of articles that have pushed in this direction. That's from Brookings, the last organization I ever would have imagined to push out an idea like that. That's the climate in which we exist. Yeah, I don't like and I didn't see the article. And I have no doubt that there are some folks in this country that say that we're so broken that that's the best that we could ever do. But I do think, look, I do think that everything has to be breaking news now. Cable news sells on conflict. And, you know, so it is a challenge. And it's not one that, you know, if I could turn around and say, what are the three things that have changed since I was getting out of college that has kind of polluted the overall political environment and the ability for people to work together. It's certainly redistricting or gerrymandering. It's certainly the outside influence of money in the system. And it's the media environment. Yes, you could take legislative steps or administrative steps to change that. It wasn't that long ago that the fairness doctrine actually existed for broadcast and cable media. Um, When that left, you know, that horse may be out of the barn, but we can't just give up on it. And we also got to recognize that people are getting their media in different ways now. And are there ways to actually influence the efforts of social media? You wrote in your op-ed that rural voters don't think Democrats are working for them. Do they think Republicans are working for them? Or even more so, are, are, are rural voters even voting on the economic issues that affect their well-being at all? Or are they voting on cultural issues? Well, I think it's in the absence of a direct economic connection or a belief that a party is fighting for you each and every day, that the cultural issues really have room to foment and rise. And, you know, it's it's interesting because like when I speak of rural voters or workers, everybody's mind immediately goes to code. You're only talking about white, non-college educated men. You know, you look at the Carpenters Union in the Western states, 68% of their members through the West are of color. So folks that, right, not college educated, working hard, not necessarily feeling like they're getting ahead. Maybe to try to get even more direct. No, I don't think that the Republicans have um, done great things for rural America. Like, look, you look over the last four years, right? 60 of the Fortune 500 companies paid zero in taxes, and we all end up owing another $1.8 trillion are the only thing farmers got. And farmers don't want handouts. They just want a fair price. All they got was handouts from the trade war. But when there's a lack of connection and belief that a party is fighting for your economic interests, I think that the opportunity to bring in the more or less the cultural issues becomes a lot stronger. And I think that's what we're seeing in many respects. And often that um, for excerpt people out of urban areas, then, and it's like, this isn't just the Democrats, right? Then the media and Republicans will try to define those Democrats as whatever the most seemingly extreme is of the party. So do you think your ability to connect to the rural voters on a local level was the key to your victory in 2016? I think that people in 2016 um, might not have agreed with everything that I said. But yes, part of it was I would show up. And I do think they believe that even if I disagree with him in some areas, I think he's trying to fight for my best interest. And look, I didn't, you know, I... Um, lost a race in 2020, I never actually spoke to a voter through that because this thing called this global pandemic. And um, it's a lot easier for the national narrative to creep in when people don't actually see you and 
hear you directly. They just hear whatever the typecasts are. You saw the nationalization of the campaign as your major challenge in 2020? I think, you know, there's certainly, and I'm no pundit, like there are differences between running for statewide and something that goes into Washington, D.C., and it's much more federalized. But, but yeah, from the time I announced to Election Day, um, you know, usually I'd be at not only rotaries, but brew houses and events. I literally never spoke to a voter other than, and what the voters saw was either me trying to protect them, because I also had the great distinction of getting to manage a global pandemic, either trying to protect them or take away their rights. And I think that that provided a lot more of the opportunity to nationalize race. I mean, I think my opponent said AOC and Nancy Pelosi more than he said mining. Would you mind if I start at the beginning and ask you how you first became interested in public affairs at all and politics in particular? Where did it come from? Was it parents? Was it schooling? Was it some issue that came up? What got you first thinking about public life? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Wally, because uh, there wasn't like any family members that were... My mom was on the school board at a time when... Um, you know, there were challenges even with women leading in school boards, but didn't really know political figures. Grew up uh, in Helena, Montana, in a single parent household, kind of paycheck to paycheck. Um, was engaged to the degree one can through high school in mostly just high school activities. Like, wasn't that involved in anything at a political level? I had a sense thought that I was a Democrat, um, not really knowing much about it other than saying that, you know, like this notion that it seemed to me like the party that wanted to make sure everybody had a fair shot at a better life, not necessarily giving it to you. Um, I went off to college in Southern California and ended up interning um, at at the Democratic Party for parts of my summer while I was doing other things. And all of that was interesting. Um, it wasn't, I guess, until subsequent years that I actually gave thought to maybe running for office, though. And how did that just, you know, where does the bug first start? I guess that's what I'm uh, angling for. Yeah, yeah. So so I had done some campaign work, but um, I went to Columbia Law School and I showed up, I think, with just a pen to sign student loans and got out of there with north of $100,000 of debt and had this grand plan of I was going to stay and work like in the city, pay off all my loans, then start really thinking about what I might want to do with my life. Um, Life sometimes, you know, throws obstacles in your way. And my father, uh, who I hadn't lived with since grade school, but got stage four lung cancer. Um, So knew that you know, if I was ever going to kind of make things right, I needed to go home. And at the time, uh, boy, you couldn't even have covered my student loan payments with what I'd get at a private firm. So I ended up in a cubicle at the attorney general's office, because if I worked in government or public service, Columbia would pay my loans. And I'll never forget, it was um, it was a case actually dealing with stream access, recreational access in Montana. And I'm a baby lawyer, two years out of law school, uh, maybe three years out, and I'm standing up in court and saying, you know, it doesn't matter the size of your paycheck, who your parents are, these streams and rivers belong to all of us. And I'm Steve Bullock, I represent the people of Montana. And I'm all of a sudden thinking like, this is the coolest job in the world. I want to be attorney general. So I actually, I, shortly thereafter, I ran for it. And I'm not even sure my whole family voted for me. I just got killed in a primary. And I'm like, runner for office stinks. I never want to do that again. And didn't really think I was going to do it again. Fast forward a few years, I paid off my law school loans. Um, That was in 2000 that I first ran for attorney general. Paid off my law school loans. 
uh, was back in Helena. And at the time, the minimum wage in Montana was $5.15 an hour. And it died on a 50-50 vote in our state legislature. And um, got sort of, well, one of the leaders said, oh, that's great, because now we don't have to lay off a bunch of kids or people with disabilities. Not recognizing, right, the the vast majority of minimum wage earners are actually single parent heads of household. So I ended up uh, forming a group called Raise Montana and by volunteer effort, we increased the minimum wage. And it got me fired up that look, one person can make a difference. So fast forward a couple more years later, I wanted to decide, I really loved working in the attorney general's office. I'm gonna run for attorney general. And kind of all the, Power brokers said, you know, there's two other people already running in the Democratic primary. Why don't you run for something else, insurance commissioner or something like that? And it's like, no, I don't want to run for an office just so I can hold an office. I really loved that job. So I ran for it and I wasn't supposed to win the primary. Nobody had remembered I'd run eight years prior. Uh, I think I probably learned something about the way that you actually win in a state of 147,000 square miles, be it a primary or a general, is you actually have to go all over, you know, not just the places that would be most popular. And somehow I won the primary um, and then was successful in the general election as well. So long way to say that I got into elected office at least um, because I had the chance to serve in the attorney general's office and I thought it was like, what a great job. Like then the idea wasn't, you know, some people say uh, AG actually stands for aspiring governor as opposed to attorney general. Like the idea wasn't I'll run for attorney general, then I'll run for governor. Um, It was truly to do that job. And it was a job that I loved. That's really cool. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. Fantastic. I'll talk to you next week. (laughs) I await your new op-ed. Steve Bullock is a low-key, understated kind of guy. He presents his ideas as if they are obvious, utterly common sense. But assemble his ideas, and they're a searing critique of the Democratic Party and how the party is seen by most Americans. Of course, Bullock does not think his ideas will be accepted easily. Rather, his call is for a vigorous discussion on the issues within the party. How can we begin to imagine the structure of such a conversation? I can hear three different voices making their case. The Biden loyalists, led by Biden, Harris, and their cadre. The progressive left, led by the progressive caucuses in the House and Senate, including Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal, AOC, and the Squad, and the center-left, the moderates, led by senators like Mark Kelly of Arizona and the newly elected mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and, of course, prominent national leaders, including Governor Steve Bullock. That's the cast of characters. What could the discussion sound like? In the few months between now and August, it is reasonable to expect that the Biden administration will focus on salvaging his administration, demonstrating that he is alive and kicking. It is likely he will select one of the more popular programs in Build Back Better, costing in the billions but not the trillions, and work to pass it. So my guess is that the discussion within the Democratic Party will largely be conducted between progressives and moderates, with each group paying little attention to the final days of the Biden administration. If the discussion within the party deteriorates into a debate with one side winning and one side losing, that is a recipe for defeat of Democrats in 2022 and 2024, because the losing side may feel they've been excluded and lose the motivation to fully turn out. Don't get me wrong, I am not urging us to reach some sort of mushy compromise. That will satisfy no one and will never lay a secure foundation to govern. A democratic victory in national elections can only result if the discussion within the party results in each side actually learning from the other. So let me wade deep into those policy waters and offer four ideas on what we could learn from each other. 
Could moderates learn from progressives that a well-designed Green New Deal program really could create massive numbers of excellent middle-class jobs? Could progressives learn from moderates that independent middle-class voters would much rather have those excellent jobs instead of new welfare programs? Could moderates learn from progressives that building an economy with real racial equity ends up expanding opportunities for everyone? Could progressives learn from moderates that running trillion-dollar deficits really does lead to inflation and that voters just don't trust a party that makes them pay a lot more for a loaf of bread and over four bucks for a gallon of gas? If you think I'm missing the mark on those four lessons, what ideas would you offer? You can reach me at wally at thepoliticalconversation.org. I want to thank Governor Steve Bullock for spending time with us, and I want to thank my producer, Anna Kumu, for her excellent work and interview skills. In days to come, the political conversation will continue to hear searing theoretical critiques from academic researchers, and the political conversation will continue to hear difficult political lessons from deeply involved political figures. I'll be talking with Francis Lee of Princeton, whose new book, The Limits of Party, takes on the conventional wisdoms that Congress is gridlocked and that bipartisan lawmaking is dead. And I will talk with Derry Schrago, a renowned political consultant and publisher of the Bible of California politics, the California Target book, to discuss his adventures in the latest real attempt to build a third party in America. My thanks to you for joining the political conversation. And what got you into doing this, Wally? Oh, just watching the whole political scene. And um, a a lot of it uh, got me in there with, uh, you'll see me, I'm going to ask you questions about your views of divisions in the society. And are we a hopelessly polarized nation? I think that really was the impetus. Uh, So the idea was to create a podcast build as a search for the living middle in American politics. Um, and if you if you review the folks we've interviewed so far, there's a kind of a consistent theme there. We may deviate some, but I think I think it was time to push back on that uh, conventional wisdom that we're, well, I'm gonna, one of the questions I'm gonna sling at you, he just sort of ends up saying, um, too many people are saying that our society is so divided we're essentially ungovernable. And I just got fed up with that. Sounds great. It sounds a lot like the Steve Bullock I met back during the campaign day. So <laughs> I may have become more cynical since then, Wally, but we'll see. <laughs>